0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, it's that time of year where we are trying to organize and prep and plan for the upcoming season. And some of the gear that we use takes batteries. Now, you should go visit your local Interstate Battery store or visit interstatebatteries.com to check out all the different varieties of batteries that they offer. They have truck batteries they have batteries for your trail cameras they have batteries for your rangefinder and everything else that is electronic that you use for your hunting equipment they have batteries for that interstatebatteries.com awesome company check them out
1: hey steve the weather is still way too hot here we're gonna be in the 80 high 80s low 90s with high humidity but i'm still thinking about the upcoming hunting season i'm seeing a lot of tech questions coming up on some of our electronic training equipment out there uh, from people that are that are bear hunting they're in full swing with bear bear training season right now across the united states have you been seeing that a lot on social media
2: i have you know i've been thinking myself about getting up to the mountains of virginia and doing a little training myself and uh, yeah you know when technical questions come up uh, the the normal reaction is call customer service at the uh, equipment manufacturers and sometimes that can involve a long wait on the phone uh, our friends at W hunting supply have great tech support and i'm told if you call up there uh, that jason will get on the phone with you and, and get to the root of your problem right away so uh, if i have a problem with my equipment this fall that's what i'm going to do
1: Sounds like a great idea and Jason's gonna be with us at the upcoming major Coon Hound event or hound event of the United States Autumn oaks So he's gonna be in the booth with us. So you can stop by our booth, pick up all your Houndsman XP logo wear, and also pick Jason's brain about any questions you might have about your Garmin or Dogtra or whatever
2: whatever platform you're using there to track your hounds. Absolutely. Uh, W Hunting Supply is a one-stop shop for everything the houndsman needs. Uh, They're online at www.dusupply.com.
0: This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me,
1: Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. And we're in for uh, a very good interview here with Steve on the line. Steve, how are you today?
2: I couldn't be better, Chris. Sitting down here in Asana, sauna, 90 today, 90 today, about 80 right now, and sunny with the chance of thunderstorms. And that's your weather report, brought to you by Houndsman XP <laughs> and Les
1: Nessman, <laughs> the roving reporter.
2: That's right, yeah. uh, Les. I never remember
1: Les Nesman doing any weather, though. That probably his epic, epic was the uh, Turkey Turkey Day promotion. You remember that episode of WKRP? <laughs> oh yeah, remember yeah, I
0: remember, that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I remember dropping the, them uh... <laughs> from the airplane, weren't they? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. He says, "I swear, I thought turkeys could fly." That's
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> We've also, hey, I- this voice you're hearing on the other end, we're going to get to, uh, we're going to have a good conversation with him today. We have Mark Dufresne. He's a main guide, uh, educated biologist and, uh, uh, taxidermist. I mean, this guy's, this guy's doing it all and, and, uh, we'll certainly get there. But, uh, Steve, did you, uh. Did you want to introduce Mark, or do you do we want to just jump in that? We're kind of flying by the seat of our pants right here.
2: Well, I see that, and you know what I had I had such a good comment on that weather. You know who who I remember was the was uh, George Carlin's routine of the hippy dippy weatherman. You remember that one? No, but I'll be looking it up on YouTube now. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you a little bit of it. He said, "Hey, this is the hippy dippy weatherman." with the hippy-dippy weather, man. <laughs> <laughs> he said there'll be a small, dark, gray cloud over the south corner of town sometime later today. We should get something out of that. So hopefully today our listeners will get something out of this, and I know they will because it's, it's good for me to introduce a guy that I met at the APA Breed Day's For the first time, uh, a couple of years ago, that's the American Plot Association uh, have their annual breed days down in Greenville, Tennessee. And he was in a company of some people that I uh, are very, very dear friends and uh, uh, comes to find out that uh, our guest is is a close friend of Joe and Nancy Hudson from the UP of Michigan as well. And I'm just uh, very, very happy to introduce our guest for today, Mark Dufresne. Mark, how are you doing, my friend?
0: I'm doing good. Uh, I sure appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, yeah, we're just enjoying a nice uh, summer day up here in July in Maine.
1: What is it? What kind of a day is a summer day in Maine?
0: Well. Um, I'll tell you, I've had this time of year, I've gone everywhere from uh, needing to wear a sweatshirt in the morning and seeing your breath to uh, being 94 degrees. I think if you wait five minutes, uh, the weather will change and you can get anything you want on a July day.
1: Well, I'm excited about having somebody on from the Northeast. Uh, We talk about a lot here in the Midwest. We've talked about the West and uh, Maine is one of those places that is very rich in hound hound history and also American history, and I'm I'm excited about having you on, Mark. I really appreciate it. I know one thing that uh, this is just kind of a funny story. Uh, when when I first started following you on social media, your name is spelled doesn't it doesn't look like Defraine. so I was pronouncing it Defresney and all kinds of things, and uh, that's what most do. Yeah, so. I think, uh, it was at APA breed days. Somebody said, well, I think Mark Dufresne is going to be here. And I was like, I don't know who Mark Dufresne is. And they said, sure. You, you follow him on Facebook all the time. And I started, I, so I pulled out Facebook and had him show me, you know, show me what you're and If somebody says to me, Polly Francais, no, my answer is "Nope, <laughs> No can do. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of, uh, a lot of rich history with uh the french here in new england um you know as well as especially a town just north of me here in lewiston maine uh, a lot of shoe factories you know back in the day and uh, there were many uh, uh french workers and and there's actually there's still parts of town where french is spoken pretty fluently
1: no uh, kidding so
0: yeah you'll see a lot of uh a lot of french uh people here in new england and as you get further up north um you know, you have Quebec and and even parts of New Brunswick still speak French uh, pretty regularly. So I've never—it's uh, it's pretty common here.
1: I've never been in the Northeast. My wife and I keep uh, talking about coming up there. My brother actually took his honeymoon up there uh, in Maine somewhere. I'm not sure what part, but he he just raves about it. And then I have another good friend that told me that if I go to Maine, I'll stop driving west. I'll start driving northeast. So
2: I'm gonna have to give that a shot. It's,
0: it's well, really you sh- unique state, yeah.
2: Well, you guys should know that I'm rather fluent in French. I took French in uh, my senior year of high school. I learned, uh, Laporte, open the door. Is that right, uh, Mark?
0: Uh, well, I've got to be honest about the only French I can speak <laughs> is uh, food, so I can make sure I can eat. <laughs>
2: I I learned how to uh, say chicken,
0: number nine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like uh, West Virginian French is like uh, Parlez-Vous Francis, you know? (laughs) You
1: you ignorant, Rich. Your French is worse than your Japanese.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He's always... Putting me down. Um, you're, you're I'm me- like Rodney Dangerfield, Mark. I don't get no respect, you know? No respect. No respect. That's right. Well, you remember the
1: opening scene in Tombstone when uh they're re- they go down to the south of the border there and and getting that gunfight the Cowboys do, and that Mexican guy's trying to translate what the Mexican's saying, and Johnny Ringo yeah. says, You ignorant wretch, your Spanish is worse than your English. That's not what he said at all.
2: hey mark tell me a little bit about uh, what part of maine you're from geographically let's let's get you uh situated there
0: all right well sure well first off you know maine is um it's kind of an interesting state because i think three quarters of the country thinks we're actually part of canada Uh, (laughs) you know we're way up here uh you know in the corner of the northeast uh we're bordered by new Hampshire in the south and then uh you know we have quebec on the north and uh then you have new brunswick on the northeast and then you also have nova scotia um so we're we're kind of tucked up in there uh i'm actually in southern maine where i live um you know i live in gray maine which is uh just north of portland and uh which is probably the you know the most recognized city here in maine i would guess um But yeah, I live out kind of the edge of the country, uh, you know, uh, lived here, oh, trying to think 25 years or so now.
2: Now you came from Massachusetts, is that right?
0: Yes. Um, I grew up in, in Western Mass. Um, really neat, uh, you know, I find myself, I I think I was real fortunate growing up. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot, uh, you know, we lived in small farming communities, um. It was a really, really unique place. Uh, you know, really, it reminds me a lot of West Virginia. Uh, where I grew up was what they called the hill towns, And, um, you know, really small communities. Uh, for instance, you know, I went to um, my elementary school. It was a four-room schoolhouse. There was seven kids there, and in sixth grade, one of them moved away. So, you know, we ended <laughs> up, uh, six of us going into high school. Um so it was pretty pretty small town, you know, America. Um,
1: I would it say it was a great
0: place. You know, a uh, lot of farming with uh, tobacco in the Pioneer Valley down around the Connecticut River, and um, so yeah, I kind of relate to you know the hills of West Virginia and Tennessee uh, pretty well.
2: Great! I had no idea they raised tobacco in in Mass. Uh, I yeah, it, that's it was, a new
0: it was a huge product in fact if you go i took my son last uh summer i took him for a ride down through and uh you know there's hundreds and hundreds of tobacco barns still uh they were built with uh slate roofs and actually most of the beams are chestnut in them Mm. Uh, that's how old we're going back wow wow um you know they just sit out in fields now tobacco's you know a thing of the past but boy when i was a kid growing up uh down in the valley along the connecticut river it was all shade tobacco and then up in the hills we uh we all grew leaf tobacco hmm. smaller fields and um yeah so you know a uh, pretty pretty neat place to grow up i i find myself uh i consider it pretty fortunate to grow up in the time and the place that i did
1: right here where i'm at we grow a lot of tobacco as well so i'm pretty familiar with uh with that part of the life that you led but the rest of it's pretty foreign to me i I was looking on my map here about gray maine that is uh in the southern part there and you're not there's so much water in maine
0: yeah yep uh uh, you know we got the lakes region right here and i honestly i couldn't even tell you i haven't i've lived here i I guess i've been around here almost 30 years now some and uh I still haven't been to every lake and pond you know? I imagine <laughs> There's not. a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, Steve. What about, yeah. What about the, uh, do you do any fishing at all up there? We'll get that out of the way. That, that always seems to creep into the conversations uh, <laughs> sure, because sure. I, well, I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah. We've, uh, you know, fishing is big here. Um, I'm, uh, I prefer my brook fishing. Um, give me a, a fly pole or even drowning some worms and um kind of stalking the streams and fishing the pools i enjoy that but you know right here just a few miles away is sebago lake um that's a pretty massive lake uh you know the lake trout fishing i mean it's you know landlocked salmon it's um it's a destination for a lot of people you know up north you got moosehead lake i believe that's over 20 miles long um Fishing is a big thing here in Maine for sure. Uh I do prefer my brook fishing over anything else. I get bored well, trolling on the lakes.
2: Yeah, well that's me. I'm a stream I we call it stream fishing down in, in the mountains of, of uh the Appalachians. But uh, my dad and I uh spent many happy hours on a on trout streams catching brook trout when I was young. Yep. And yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, well, it's, what uh,
0: it's a lot of fun for
2: sure. Well, how did you migrate? Tell us a little bit about your background. You've got such a a varied portfolio there mark of activities. I know that you are a you're a, re- a registered guide in the state of Maine. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, you have to uh pass a pretty extensive test here. Uh I guess it's considered next to Alaska. It's one of the most uh difficult, uh, test there is to pass. So, uh, yeah, registered Maine guide here in Maine.
2: And you all, we're going to touch on each one of these, I hope. Uh, but you're also a taxidermist. What about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing that since, um, oh, I, well, I started when I was eight years old and I, I kind of stopped counting at 40, but I think I'm about to turn 48 here at the end of the month. <laughs> um, taxidermy, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, obviously hunting was a big, big, always been a big part of my life. Um, You know, uh, our town that I grew up in, uh, small town, uh, you know, they had these deer hunting teams. And uh, I remember when I was uh, about 15, 14 or 15, I got to finally, I got to, you know, basically put on one of the teams and, you know, it was uh, whoever shot the most weight and deer at the end of the year had to cook uh, dinner for the losers. Um, and it was a, you know, you had a lot of roasts and um, jokes, and you know, it was a real fun time. So hunting was a was a huge part of uh, my life growing up, um, and it it just sort of transferred into taxidermy. Uh, we were, you know, I guess we were by some standards we were pretty poor, but uh, I kind of thought myself I was pretty rich. Uh, I didn't really know it, but uh, we always had what we needed. But we didn't have a lot, so we—I kind of figured out early on that if I wanted to do something, I had to figure out how to do it myself.
2: I wonder and, if we could teach that lesson to a lot of young people today. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's uh, sadly the world's changing, uh, not yeah, for the better. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, taxidermy. I, you know, I had. Uh, Oh, we lived in a great place, uh, you know, a little uh, town called Wakely, Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, farm fields all around, and, you know, I was duck hunting, pheasant hunting. I mean, I never really even played any sports. Um, I, I thought it was a waste of time to go to practice because I wanted to be in the woods fishing or hunting. Um, you know, and I got home off the bus, and I just I grabbed a single shot, 410, and I hit the mountain. It didn't matter what time of the year it was uh didn't really know any better back then but uh so i'd shot a duck one day and i decided i wanted to try to mount it so boy back in the day uh you know there wasn't much information on taxidermy so i just kind of found what i could out there some some information from i think it was about the 1800s and <laughs> i mounted my first duck
1: <laughs> and you made do you make a straw yeah. body for it
0: uh, i sure did
1: no yep. way yep. did you really
0: oh yeah wrapped i I mount you will probably laugh at this if anybody understands taxidermy, but I guess I was so poor and didn't know any better that uh, I actually mounted a fish on a wrapped excelsior body one time
1: <laughs> that's that... and
0: that's that's a stretch <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're also a uh you're also education wise you're a a wildlife biologist right
0: yeah, yeah, you know I haven't really followed through with it here um, you know, I, I really, really wanted to do some neat stuff. You know, I, I guess I'm trying to think back. I must've been, I think I was around eight, nine, 10 years old. I can't even remember, but, um, my, my mom was a single mom. Uh, my dad left when I was young and she, um, hooked up with this guy that, uh, he was quite a character kind of a, still is a local character, but he was always good to me. He was a hunting fool. And, uh, Through people we knew, Um, you know, we bear hunted, and we ended up, the University of Massachusetts did a bear study years and years ago, and uh, it was actually right around my family's land. They had collared uh, sows, and they'd go into the dens, and, you know, so when I was just a little kid, uh, I actually got to go and help catch these bears, and they'd run them and tree them and and dart them, Um, you know, so I got to see some pretty neat stuff, and, and it really kind of influenced where I wanted to go. Um, I was just really just a hillbilly and uh, never had any plans for college. But I ended up a uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, kind of got me interested in college, and, and I made the trip to Maine, and that's how I got here to Maine. Uh, I went to Unity College and uh, majored in wildlife, minored in forestry, and graduated with a degree in the The hillbilly I was, I actually graduated with the Dean's Award, um, highest GPA in the field, so that was pretty uh, surprising. Um,
2: Congratulations, awesome.
0: Yeah, you know, I guess, um, you know, a lot of people have influenced me through my life, but uh, I've always had great support. You know, even though we may not have had a lot, I never felt that anything was impossible if you wanted to do it. So you you know you work hard, you set your mind to it, um and and things will happen. So, you know, I worked hard in college and and we didn't have money to to pay for college. So, I was pretty serious about it. A lot of kids there were were drinking and having fun and partying and uh not me. I was I was pretty much all business. Uh I had a goal and I wanted to achieve that goal. So, I um I started doing some wildlife work and I think the first job I had was, uh, the tagging station, tagging moose in Maine. And I figured out real quick, uh, back then there was only four tagging stations in Maine and I was up in Greenville, which was the biggest station. And, uh, you might tag 200 of them a day and, uh, boy, it was 24 hours a day and you hardly made any money. And, uh, you know, you might have to get woke up at two in the morning to tag a moose for somebody, but it was hard work, but I liked it. And, um... You know, then I went out to Oregon. I worked in uh, Oregon. That was really a, kind of a dream job. I worked in Medford, Oregon, uh, trapping black-tailed deer for a mortality study. Mm-hmm. Uh, we radio-collared them, ear-tagged them, took down information on age. Um, you know, we were live trapping them, and, you know, we did some sedation with uh, with darts and stuff. Uh, certain age classes were hard to get. Um, so, you know, that was that was a lot of fun. I had a great boss. Uh, really, really cut me loose. I mean, here I was, you know, I can't even remember if I was 20 years old. Uh, You know, I had a truck, a tank full of gas and, you know, Crater Lake National Park. I had all the keys to every gate that was closed. And I just got to go places that uh, it was really cool. Um, Really loved it. You know, I got offered a a full-time position there, which I didn't take because I, I sort of had a dream all my life that I wanted to to get to Alaska. Um, wanted to live in Alaska. So right. I had a job offer up in Alaska and, um, uh, and I took that and, uh, you know, that, that was really cool. Um, I got to, uh, fish for Alaskan she fish, rod and reel fishing seven days a week. Uh, <laughs> I was above the Arctic circle, 500 miles from the nearest Eskimo village. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we saw things that, you know, we saw the part of Alaska that most people never get to see, doing the touristy thing. I mean, we lived it. We lived right out there in tents, and you know, migration of caribou right through camp. Wow. Uh, grizzly bears walking down the beach. Um, bears that that really had no fear of human beings. They'd never seen people. Yeah. And you had to have a shotgun with rubber slugs and and uh in live rounds at all times with you i was yeah, a pretty good shot so for, I got, forget about I the rubber duty.
1: slugs i'm going straight to the lead
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah you were supposed to give them one warning shot and mm-hmm. if they persisted then last resort was lethal contact it's
1: but, amazing uh, how fast you can put that lead one in right behind that rubber one though <laughs>
0: yeah. well you know and the you know in massachusetts we were uh we were deer hunters down there and it was shotgun only right so the you know, and I used an 870 shotgun, mm-hmm. the old Remington 870, uh, you know, an old standby. And, and, boy, wouldn't you know what they Wing put that in their hands. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you had to qualify with it. And I was one of three of us, and uh, my turn came up last. And they take a 55-gallon drum, and they pull it towards you about 20 miles an hour, and there's a target on the end of it there. And I was able to put three shots in the, about a four-inch circle, and, pretty short time so they said well you're the gunman <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah debate uh,
0: but, right yeah <laughs> you, were, yeah, you had debating. to walk
2: point then right
0: <laughs> i thought that was cool at the time until i realized <laughs> i had to tow the gun around 24 7 every place i went
2: <laughs> <All> Right. <laughs> so did you yeah, work, did job. you
0: we, did you
1: work so you worked in teams there then
0: yeah there, there was three of us in um in there and um you know, it was it was pretty neat. We uh, we would catch fish, and then we would have a uh, temporary corral built right in the river. We put them in there. When we got four or five of them, we would uh, take all the data. We'd take scale samples so they could age them, um, and we would weigh them, take their length, uh, all their measurements, and then every so often we would actually do surgery on one, and we would implant a telemetry device in their belly, and then we hmm. had stations and tree stands set up in spruce trees along the spawning run and uh, you know it would track the, the migration route to the fish it's, it's a really important uh, subsistence fish for the natives but people really don't know anything about it um, I, I think there's only and I could be wrong on this but I think there's only maybe three rivers in Alaska that have it a few in the northwest territories um, it's a white fish they spawn just like salmon uh, really good Really good taste, and we weren't supposed to kill any, but every now and then an accident happened. Uh, you know, we had an old uh, Eskimo, Ralph Ramis, uh 80. I believe Ralph was uh, he was 85. He was in his mid 80s. Um, and I've always enjoyed the older generation, and uh, I really hit it off with this guy, and uh, I hung out a lot with him. And he was an old wolf hunter. He was still in his 80s, and he would still go out and he'd hunt wolves all winter. You know, 50 below zero. Uh, got to go back to his house and look at some of the pelts that he had tanned and uh just a unique experience uh, wouldn't trade it for the world you know the the only thing i found in those in those jobs is and i guess why i shied away from the wildlife work was politics um you know, both at the state and the federal level, it was it was pretty bad.
1: Um, well, I just got done with level. I just got done with a twenty eight year career, and that's that's one of the reasons why I decided at the time that I did it. You know, everybody was like, "Well, if you hang on for another another five years, yeah. you can make you can make two hundred dollars more a year." And I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding they, me? They
0: didn't. <laughs> it was brutal. You know, they yeah. they wouldn't offer you much for full time positions they hardly wanted to pay you anything and then what really got me was um you know these the ways that they hire the federal government uh, you got to go through local hires uh, they'd had an incident the year before with a native uh kid really on his 18th birthday committed suicide in his tent uh mm. and you know it, then i had uh, one of the guys with us was a vietnam veteran he was a great guy but he had no formal training and, you know, he got the job because of veterans preference and um, it's just, it was a tough spot because if if you had the wrong personnel out there, you know, you didn't, you didn't have support instantly. Um, We were so far out there that if you screwed up, you know, it might cost you and the team, you know, your lives. Right. Right. um, We could definitely,
1: we could definitely, I know between Steve and I alone, we could probably do a series of like a year's worth of podcast on politics, that's for sure. Yeah. So yeah. how did you end up back in up back up there in Maine, Mark?
0: Yeah, well, my um you know, I had met my uh wife in, in college, um, you know, and, and that was sort of another part of uh the decisions. Um uh, you know, we were is both she in the wildlife same, work.
1: Is she the same girlfriend that influenced you to go to college?
0: No different one. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. Yeah, yeah, no different one. Uh we weren't a good match. She was an engineer and I was a hunter, so we had to part ways. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I I met my wife and um you know, uh we both worked wildlife work and, and this was the real rub, you know, as a young man, wanted to start a family, always liked kids and uh I think she worked in Alaska for three years, I was in Oregon and then I went to Alaska. She was working in the swamps of North Carolina doing birding surveys, mm. and it was a similar experience every year. We were never, never together, other than a little bit here and there. Um, and nobody wanted to offer you the full time jobs. They pretty much just take advantage of you. And uh, so, uh, you know, I said, "Well, let's let's just go back." Her family was from Gray. Um, you know, family land here. We ended up building a house and and sort of settled in here started a family
2: well mark um uh, where did this interest in hounds start if i heard you correctly you said that that your stepfather i believe uh, uh was a yeah. houndsman is that where it all began for you with the hounds
0: yeah you know um you know it's so funny i you know i was just a just a young dumb teenager really had no no idea what i had access to at the time but um one of our friends and neighbors was uh, Chip Sprague. He's quite a character. If you knew Chip you either liked him or you hated him. <laughs> and uh, but he was I, good to me, you know. I I didn't have much of a fatherly figure, so you know, guys that made time for a kid that, that meant a lot to me. And uh,
2: Well boy, uh, if I can jump in there real quick. Chip Sprague, I believe, hunted or hunted dogs for Leroy Howe, did he not?
0: Yeah. Yep, the Swamp Land plot.
2: Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: uh, and in fact, um, you know, this, this part all part of the story, I guess. But, uh, you know, so Chip, you know, anytime he went hunting, he'd have me along. And, uh, my stepdad, um, my mom and him never formally married, but I pretty much consider him my stepdad. He was always good to me. And, uh, he always had hounds. And, um, you know, Leroy would actually come and hunt with Chip and, and my dad, my dad helped Chip guide and they'd hunt Vermont and Hampshire and mass there. And, uh, so, you know, I always knew Leroy is just the old guy with the cane and, uh, they'd come back with two or three bears. A lot of the times I had to take care of the dogs while they were hunting and, uh, they'd bring bears back and I can remember they'd pay me, I don't know if it was 10 bucks a bear to, uh, skin the bears for them. And, uh, and whatnot when they got back. So yeah, you know, the I still remember the first hound hunt and and I can't even remember if I was ten years old or what. But uh I remember we went up to Vermont and um we were hunting with Chip and I was riding with Chip and we turned the dogs loose and struck a track and uh and they were out and uh you know that morning we had walked uh what the place they called the freezing hole. It's actually where Nancy Hudson uh grew up is as, as she knows all those areas. And uh I'd first met Nancy when I was a little kid, I guess. Um,
2: was yeah, she so hunting? Was, uh, let me jump in here a minute, Mark. Now, does Herm Hageman enter into this picture at all? I remember Herm from back yeah, in the well, day, from Massachusetts. Certainly,
0: um, yeah. You know, they, they were all very, very local to where I grew up in western
2: Massachusetts okay.
0: in the hill towns. And, um, yep, yeah, so, you know, Herm was around and, and Chip and Leroy and, um, you know, was a quite a crew of hunters back then and uh there really wasn't any seasons or dates you could train year round and um so you know that first hound hunt i mean i'll never forget it you know we ended up with a bear tree and it was in the rocks and we were climbing up through this ravine and uh boy somebody yelled you know he's coming out he's coming out and somebody goes running up there and draws a pistol and he starts shooting and ended up Point blank finishing off the bear, and of course, he landed in the ditch that we were standing in. And you know, it was about a 70 degree slope, and down the bear, and the dogs all come, and uh, we're jumping for cover, and uh, just (laughs) never forget it, you know. A rodeo a lot of years ago, it was a rodeo, and (laughs) I remember at the bottom of that when all the dust had settled, you know, here's all these brindle dogs, and um you know, limping around and cuts and tears, and, and they were still thrashing that bear. And uh, really really kind of stuck with me the rest of my life. But that was, I guess that was my influence and, uh, you know, where I first kind of saw hounds and, and bear hunting.
2: Well, when you got to Maine, uh, there were, uh, so many names come up to me, uh, and I want to just kind of run down this list just a little bit and just have you tell me whether or not you knew these guys and if you had a story or a hunt or anything back in the day i was very involved with the plot association because my dad would take me to plot days every year and that's the national plot hound association and uh there was a guy back in the day uh, named wayne bosowitz in in may
0: and (laughs) at that
2: time wayne was a hound hunter i think later on he he probably yeah. became a, a more of a bait hunter. You knew Wayne. Yeah, he
0: was. Yep. Um, run into him in the woods back. You know, after he'd given up the hounds, and uh, and he was um he was a tough old bugger. You know, he'd give you grief about running in the you know running dogs in there, and kind of almost became a little anti hound later in life, which was a shame.
2: Yeah, that's um, a, that's a really hard to believe, I, and I know yeah. it's true because I've heard that from other sources yeah. but back in the day you know he was all about those von plot bred plot dogs you know yes. back, back yeah. when i knew him had a had a bitch named Olabel, if i recall correctly back in the day well another yeah. name and you mentioned uh maine being bordered by nova scotia uh don everett did you ever know don
0: you know i i didn't but um you know right here in town there was um a fella, uh, by the name of cop, he was a big time cat hunter and they had a lot of right. big cat hunts up in Nova Scotia. And, uh, right. so I, I've, I've run into people here and there, but I can't say I really know all of them, but, um, yeah, you know, yeah. definitely a pretty large hound group around here.
2: Sure. Don was a real sweet guy. I used to correspond with him when I was at UKC and he'd, uh, he was getting up in years at that time. But, uh, um, yeah, there's so many people up there. Paul Doyle, is that a name that you you know or familiar with? I, I've
0: heard of the name. Um, I've never met him, but I have heard of him.
2: Mm-hmm. He was in Vermont, and he yep. bought uh, a dog that was Isaiah Kidd's stud dog at, at the time, a dog named Jeff and he yep. bought that dog and uh, I hunted with Jeff many times when I w- was a kid. Okay, well, I just thought you may know some of the uh, of the uh the same people that I've uh, had the pleasure of meeting from up in that part of the country. Uh Mark, tell tell me a little bit about how uh bear hunting with hounds or hound hunting is doing in the state of Maine right now is is it on the upswing a downswing holding steady what what's uh you know, what's the um, situation
0: yeah like you know unfortunately in this world we're in with the the liberal agenda and the anti-rights uh, animal rights activists and everything else um you know we're under the gun just like every part of the country um you know it's it's really it's tough uh maine's a little unique in some ways um Maine is actually over 90% of the timberlands is actually privately owned by timber companies. So we don't have much national forest. There's some in western Maine in the western mountains, um, the White Mountain National Forest that comes in a little bit, but pretty much everything is privately owned timberlands. So those timber companies are really in control of what they want done on their lands now. The unique thing in Maine is we've always had an open land concept for hunting and recreation. Um, if it's not posted, you can you can do what you want there as long as you you know you're responsible and and don't ruin things. Uh, we've had a long tradition of of access, but when it comes to bear hunting with hounds, bear hunting, bait hunting, um bait hunting is probably the biggest thing here in Maine, and there's more money in bait hunting. Uh, the guides, you know, really, sort of control uh, a lot of what happens, in these timber companies lease bait sites to bear hunters. So in order to have a territory to hunt in, you've got to lease bait sites. Um, You know, there's a few timber companies that don't have lease situations, but most of them, it's not so much you're leasing acreage as you are you're leasing a bait site. And if you have a large enough area to run your dogs where they stay in there, they kind of let you be but you know with hounds they go where they want and um it's become pretty difficult uh for the recreational hunter the the reason I became a guide was really because of that it it really limits the recreational hound hunter here in Maine um we've got a ton of bears in fact the state biologists we've got one of the longest running bear studies uh in the country or maybe it is the longest um they know what they're doing randy cross is amazing um they they keep telling us we need to kill more bears but the problem is is you've in in the, the best way i can relate it is uh you know you have bear sanctuaries down in north carolina and those places kind of replenish the bear stock in other places well it's become a lot like that because certain outfitters they may lease 300 bait sites you know i'm talking 500 square miles and wow you can't go in there with your hound if mm-hmm. you're not invited so as a guide, you know, you can work for these bigger outfits. Um, and, and that's kind of what I did so I could hunt as much as I wanted to with my hounds. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, the referendum process here in Maine or political processes is really flawed. And, uh, because of the referendum process, similar to Michigan, um, you know, outside money can, can get ballot initiatives and they can really influence elections. And, They've tried twice now to uh, take our hound hunting away. Um, You know, we have a tremendous bear population and and tremendous wild country to hunt, but they're, like any place, we're under the gun as far as hound hunting goes.
1: So, Mark, uh, you guys just survived a referendum to end your hunting up there with hounds. Uh, Can we get, get into that a little bit and talk about Sure. what that was but the main thing the main point i want to try to make here the first question i've got several questions about it the first question i have is how prepared were the bear hunters of maine to combat that referendum
0: you know um really we weren't prepared um it it was uh you know they've actually come after us twice right uh, very first time they came after bait hunting hounds and and we're actually one of the only states in the country where you can still trap a bear and that's probably the lowest hanging fruit you know that's the one that's hard to defend but um, I have trapped some bears Um, I have guided guys to trap bears Uh, if you're a trapper it's a pretty unique opportunity and I don't believe in limiting anybody's outdoor activities Um, I don't have to do it uh you know i've tried it so i had a you know an opinion on it right um i enjoyed it but you know it's it's not an exciting thing for me so i don't pursue it but um
1: you support people yeah, that so the do first,
0: i do yeah I'm, i'll never i'll never try to take away another man's rights um who am i to tell somebody how they should you know enjoy the woods or their time in the woods
1: so in what um, way were you not prepared in retrospect here looking back uh could you just share with the the audience what that was like to go through and some of the some of the things that could have been done differently in preparation for that assault on bear honey
0: sure um you know uh i guess impact wise um you know it's a huge impact you know hunting with hounds is a lifestyle it's a it's a lifetime commitment it's not just a weekend sport, something you do once in a while. Um, so, you know, it's, you're talking about a major impact on your life. Now, me, maybe more than some, uh, as a guide and, and also a taxidermist, you know, bears are one of the largest parts of my work. And, um, if you took away the bears, I probably would lose my, my living as a taxidermist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely, you know, in, in Maine in general, Northern Maine is very, um, it's very poor you know the logging industry has crashed with the you know the paper industry is down because that you know the internet now um hmm. you know so there's a lot of things going on that have affected northern maine and hunting is still uh very very important to the economy in most of northern maine those little towns the moose hunters the bird hunters they make a whole year's income you know guiding and and just outfitting hunts and uh... You know they'll make a year's income or enough to get by through the lean times just off of the fall seasons mm-hmm. and, and fishing as well as everything. So um, huge impact. You know we we were really hit pretty hard with the thought of of losing that. Uh, a lot of outfitters would go out of business, and uh, you know bear hunting's their primary uh, income. So you know, unfortunately, with with the referendum system, um, you know, outside money was was able to influence our economy. You know, a million dollars here in Maine from the sportsmen is a big number. Mm -hmm. You know, the Humane Society dumped in $3 So here we are, you know, a bunch of hillbillies and rednecks, you know, guys that don't want to be political, forced to come together and try to raise money, try to work together. Um, You know, and luckily we defeated them the first time. And then they came back a second time and uh we were a little bit more prepared Mm -hmm. but um but still you know when when you you know you you waited 10 years and you came back a second time well people are still recovering i mean a lot of people donated everything they possibly could uh to save bear hunting and there there wasn't extra money around so when they came back in 10 years everybody still sort of geez I, i really gave a lot last time and uh you know here they are trying to give it again and luckily we've had some we had some huge support you know joe hudson the the up bear houndsman association wisconsin bear hunters associations yeah you know they all donated um that's what really got us over the hump you know and kind of saved bear hunting in maine uh right now um you know there's a few organizations that are in place uh trying to build um you know, basically a bank account that can be used in preparation. Right. Because they're going to come back again. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, I'm a, a real big advocate of those guys. Uh, they're really trying to change the political process to where, uh, like like most states, you know, the, the population is in the southern part of the state. The bear hunting, uh, you know, all occurs in the northern part. But unfortunately for us, probably... I don't even know what the numbers are, but 80% of your voting comes from down here and 20% from up there. So uh, we lose in sheer numbers. Uh, very, very tough battle for us. Uh, you know, you're talking th- two-thirds of the state don't even really have a say in what's going to happen yeah. uh, compared to the mass of numbers down here. And so, yeah, the Sportsman's Alliance is trying to change some of that to where equal voting rights you know would have a say from north to south uh you know it they've come close um, uh, you know trying to alter the referendum process just you know they've they've won some battles as far as um being able to stop the signatures you know to get something on referendum they would hire people from out of state to sure. come in here and uh, you get. know, just blitz. I can remember at my local dump, little tiny town, and there was people there with petitions all day long trying, you know, lying to you, just telling outright lies. Right. The fairs, the little country fairs, just, uh, just playing on emotions, trying to get people to sign these petitions to get it on the ballot. Of course, sheer numbers, they got it. You know, they have an endless bank account.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so and yeah, we're... We hear that, oh, we hear that theme... Consistently on from every state that's that's faced a, a ballot initiative like Maine has recently come through, but it's a success story because you did win, and yeah. you were able to overcome the odds and defeat that endless bank account. So, do you have any do you have any words of advice to people who are sitting out here that that uh, may not be paying attention, but we know it's coming? Uh, yeah, uh, you got anything for those people,
0: man? You you gotta you gotta stay vigilant. I'm probably the last person that ever wanted to be involved politically, um, but you know, Joe Hudson and the UP Bear Houndsmen uh, before our referendum deal. You know, they flew me out to Wisconsin. Uh, you know, we met some of the people. They helped raise some extra additional money. Um, a lot of things were. A lot of people were supporting us, and, and you gotta you got to get organized. You've got to have some form of a group. Uh, the dynamic here in Maine is, is really odd. I still am at a loss for how Wisconsin and Michigan are so successful with all bear hunters because we have such a divide here in Maine between the guides and the recreational hunters. Um, the guides control a lot of the decisions, and they have a guides association who are who are actively raising money and, and battling for our rights as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're trying to benefit the guiding process versus the recreational hunter. Um, I've always been of the mindset that the recreational hunter should come first. Um, you know, they should have the most rights, taxpayers and residents of the state of Maine. So we end up with quite a, quite a divide and, and I just haven't figured out how to bridge everybody, but, but people are more vigilant, um, people are watching you know politically what's coming down the pike what are what's what are they going to hit us with um a lot of stuff is killed now before it ever gets to the point where it'll be voted on um you know important things but you you got to pay attention you got to join an organization the the hound organizations the hunting organizations anything to get you organized to stay vigilant uh to see what's coming because they're they're trying to take it whether you're a fisherman a hunter a trapper right you know it's coming everywhere
1: steve you got something
2: well mark uh, i just wondered how did you enlist the entire hunting community you know in michigan when we faced this ban on bear hunting with hounds and bait in uh, 1996 we were able to incorporate the entire hunting community of michigan into the fight you know there's uh, three quarters of a million deer hunters up there. And, uh, you know, so we were able to bring all that to bear uh, on that referendum that we faced back then. Were you able to do anything like that in Maine to bring, uh, bring it around to being a hunting anti-hunting issue, uh, versus just a bear hunting issue?
0: yeah you know we we did. um the hunting community as a whole uh, and even non-hunters, but people that lived up north, um, we had auctions and fundraisers and and everybody came together. Um, you know, luckily for us, they went after the baiting, the hounding, and the trapping. so that automatically made you all uh friends. <laughs> you know you, you yeah. hey we're all in this together, so like it or not. Uh, we got to figure this out, uh, and people are getting much more in tune with what the HSUS is all about. Uh, a lot of their lies have been exposed. Um, social media has its great points and its its bad points, but one good point is it's really exposed them for what they are and their agenda. And a lot of people are fed up with somebody trying to tell them how they're going to live when
1: there you go. You know, they
0: have no stay, in what'll happen?
1: Yeah, it's like uh, um, you know I. I've heard this analogy before. I don't know anything about long distance running, so why should I have a vote on how the Boston Marathon is run? Right. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't. don't yeah. And I know it goes against the North American Wildlife Model for Conservation where wildlife is held in a public trust. But at some, t- at some point, we've got to look at that and dissect that and think, why does somebody who puts nothing into the resource have a say on how it's managed? That That is the one part that I haven't been able to wrap my brain around with the North American wildlife model.
2: Hello? Hello? Lost it. We lost our guest. Well, uh, while you're trying to get him, can you do that, Chris? I sure while can. While I... Uh, Okay, I'll uh, I'll ramble on here just a little bit. Uh, we were talking with Mark there, and we've had some technical difficulty, and hopefully we'll have him back here in just a second. Um, but I wanted to get into with with Mark some of the interesting aspects of his guide business. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners out there have enlisted the uh, the services of a professional guide. I have not. Except for a couple of uh, instances uh, uh, of whitewater rafting, it had nothing to do with hunting at all. And I know that there are several um, of our listeners out there that probably do guide for a business uh, for their livelihood. And uh, and I I want to explore with Mark. Uh, maybe, hey, sorry about that. There he is. There He's we go. Back. Thank goodness.
1: Steve I'm was, not sure what happened. Steve was doing I was, rambling and going on and filling. Yeah,
2: I was I was doing a little vaudeville there and a little. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mark, what I was talking to our listeners about is about uh, your guide business. I know there's got to be a lot of interesting stories that have come out of your experiences <laughs> with guiding. And, and there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to – w- one thing I wanted to establish – are most of your clients uh, still hunters? Are they hound hunters? Uh, what's the mix there?
0: Sure. Most all of my hunters, I, I pretty much just um, stick to my hound hunting clients. Now, I have guided wilderness canoe trips, uh, guided moose hunters, deer hunters, um, but much less than my focus is on the hounds because that's what I enjoy.
2: I got you. Well, um, uh... <laughs> How how many uh how long is your season that you can guide clients up there and when's a good time to come?
0: Sure. Um our season our hound season starts uh I think this year it might be the ninth of September and it'll go to the uh pretty much the last Friday in October. Um so we've got a pretty generous hound season. Uh one thing you will find is on years without a mast crop, which is like your beech nuts and acorns. Um, the bears go in early i've I've seen years when by the first week in October it was done. The bears were gone hmm. um so it's it really depends on what the food sources are and and what you got going on how late the bears stay out on a beech nut year they're they're out in december um but yeah, our winters come early and they stay long
2: for sure well um the one thing I wanted to to ask you is concerning the use of dogs are clients permitted to bring their own dogs on your hunts or do you strictly yes, uh, use your pack
0: i i personally um just use my pack uh, but i know outfitters some of the guys i work with will take other hound hunters um you know for me personally it's It's about getting, the only reason I guide is to get my dogs in the (laughs) world to prove them and to work on my breeding program. So uh, I'm really not going to take the time to do that, although, you know, occasionally I've had friends come up and guide with me in an outfit, and some days we'll run their dogs, some days we'll run mine, and and some days we mix them. Um, It's always fun to compare your dogs to other people's to see how they perform.
2: That kind of opens the door to uh, your experience with dogs. Now, I I know personally that you hunt plots. Uh, is your pack an exclusive uh, plot pack, or do you have other breeds?
0: Yeah, I've got uh, I've got one old Walker, about nine years old. Um, I mostly keep her for bobcat hunting. Bobcat hunting is another um, favorite of mine. Um, I usually don't guide that. I just I hunt bobcats for my own fun. Uh, So I've got that old walker. But other than that, everything here in the yard is exclusively plots.
2: Okay, now this might be a little touchy subject. (laughs) (laughs) We are talking about my friend Joe Hudson, and my, what a guy he is. I love him like a brother. Joe and I have probably known each other for 40 years. Yeah. When he got real serious about cat hunting, Yep. He got some walkers. Yep. And Joe is a guy if you cut him he's going to breed brindle, you know. Yep. yep. Uh what is it that makes the walker dog or maybe it maybe that's too general a statement but in your experience what's the difference?
0: Um there's a, there's a big difference um and you can find it within the plot breed you just you have to look a little more. Um but the biggest difference that I've seen is your lines of dogs that have been bred strictly for bear hunting um generally bears are easy to locate in the tree they're a big smelly critter they're easier to run um it takes a tremendous track dog and tremendous intelligence to be a cat dog locating ability so obviously your your coon breeds um excel on bobcats uh you know they have that locating extreme locating ability Mm -hmm. the the track driving ability. If if you can't drive a cat track without making a loss, where they, they're very tricky critters, they run figure eights, they run their back track, they pull a lot of tricks. And um, if they have room where a dog makes a loss, they rest. And if they get used to that, you may run a cat for eight hours and never catch him. All he does is he keeps pulling tricks. Whereas the dog that makes no losses and can pound that track, drive it really hard and locate the cat, uh they catch the cats. so within the plot breed there are plenty of them uh that that work for cats but there's your your bear breeding and and i've had joe's dogs um in fact my best dog here is three quarters of joe's breeding um i've been given puppies by joe and they they, Bryn actually excels as a cat dog uh she's about at the end of her career but um She's taught me a lot of cats, but I still wouldn't class her as a top cat dog. Um, I can't say that I've ever owned a true top dog. I've hunted with some of them. Um, But, yeah, there's everything you want within the plot breed, but uh, the other breeds, you know, there's good dogs in every breed. It's all in what you like and what you prefer.
2: Well, why did you choose plots for your bear hunting?
0: uh, Well, that's that's a pretty... Pretty easy answer for me. Um, Obviously, I guess I was influenced back in the day. Uh, You know, I I remember those old Swampland dogs from Leroy, and um, I'm telling you what, they were hardcore bear dogs. It didn't matter whether they were cut or torn or tattered, they got the job done, and and he hunted across Canada and the U.S., hunted year-round, and those dogs caught game everywhere they went, so... I was kind of, uh, out of the hound scene for a while while I pursued other interests with my wildlife work. Uh, it wasn't really practical to have hounds then. So met a friend, um, through a, actually a taxidermy project, became good friends. Uh, and he was a hound hunter. He liked plots. Um, he kind of grew up under, uh, a fairly famous New England plot man, uh, Dwayne P. Smith, um. Yes. Wayne was quite a character, but uh, he caught a lot of game. And so this young fella here, uh, we hit it off, and he talked me into going on a bear hunt, and the bug was started again. And uh, then I just had to have dogs. So, you know, I just I wasn't picky then. I just wanted to catch game, so I, I tried anything coming down the pike. Um, walkers, plots, blue ticks. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, I was sorely... Um, disappointed with the game catching the the biggest problem i had is in the easy places they any of those dogs would catch game but i hunted a wilderness area along the appalachian trail uh, really no road systems whatsoever very limited access um roughest country as i've ever hunted anywhere swamps and ledges and, and spruce regenerated spruce thickets on these mountains after logging that, literally you couldn't push through. And uh, the bears prefer to stay on the ground. In fact, I had a I had a year, one year that I kept track, and I think out of twenty nine bear races, I had one bear that treed. Every other bear was on the ground fighting. And uh, so what would happen inevitably for me was with all of these other dogs, and even some of the plots, um, I would just follow behind walking bears. And in this country. If they couldn't stop the bear and, and make it wait until you could get there, you were going to be 100 yards behind it for the next 10 hours. And uh, I got some frustrated. Boy, I, I pulled my hair out, and I went through dog after dog after dog, and, and I, they just weren't doing what I remember those old plots is doing. So I, I had to start doing some research, learning a little bit more, um, really getting serious. <clears throat> and that's where Joe Hudson and, and Steve Heard, they bred together, they kind of came into the picture. And, um, you know, I got my first dog uh, that I consider a real dog was Brynn, and, uh, you know, she was just a game-catching son of a gun. all of a sudden, Joe had also given me a couple other pups, and I went from just chasing behind bear after bear after bear to catching every bear I put on. And that opened my eyes, and I was doing it with three dogs. And it didn't matter whether it was, um, you know, 500 pounds or 200 pounds or 100 pounds. They caught every bear there was. Uh, so that really influenced the direction I went. And then I had to figure out breeding. You know, how did I get? How would I get more of these dogs? Uh, so that particular area was called Elephant Mountain in uh, in Andover, and. Uh, that's what really, really influenced the direction I went with the dogs. I probably wouldn't be where I am right now if I didn't hunt that area.
2: So you've taken those dogs now and established your own breeding program, or do you look, or do you go back to guys like Joe and Steve to get dogs?
0: I, I still most of everything in my yard I have bred and raised now, but I still will go back and make crosses. Um, I also made an outcross that, um, I felt was, was pretty important at the time because I, for some reason here in New England, I just wasn't finding the plots that I wanted and, and I was traveling, I hunted, uh, you know, when I was starting to get serious about finding more of those dogs, I started to travel and hunt wherever, um, you know, Joe and Norman Walker down in Hillsborough, West Virginia, of course, Eugene Walker with the Pocahontas plots and then, uh, the West Virginia plots um you know i hunted a lot of places a lot of saw a lot of good dogs saw dogs that i wanted and, and tried to cross some in the mine or got pups from them some worked here some didn't um what i finally arrived at for a decision was uh roy clark uh, with his laurel mountain plots um, you know just through a chance meeting uh i was introduced to ira jones and And I really have to mention Roy with with those other men. Roy Ira Jones and and Ronnie Bateman, uh, they all kind of go hand in hand. They've bred these past few years together. They really had some top dogs, and and when I crossed to their dogs, it gave me exactly what I wanted, and that I've kind of built off of. So now, you know, I I breed those offspring. I line breed and family breed, and uh, occasionally I'll go back uh, to one of those guys for a Kind of some fresh stock to introduce, uh,
2: but that's where I'm at. Well, I think the lesson here for the younger hunter uh, that's listening is that uh, a serious houndsman, the extreme houndsman we like to talk about on this podcast it's not afraid to go out looking, to get out of his oh. yard, and to go look and 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 be objective and try to find something to improve that. I, you know, I look back to the days when my dad and Everett Weems got together back in the early '70s, and started talking about, you know, they found that they had the same background in in their bloodlines, and they right. started talking about, and they were they were willing, you know, to to uh do some breedings and to try some things and for us it worked out terrific and uh so i think there's a good lesson especially for the younger guy maybe that's aspiring to breed big game dogs to not be afraid to go out and look for ways to improve but then bring it back and breed it breed it close i like to breed them close if it's from a strong family of dogs so good advice mentioned
1: you mentioned ira jones and uh roy clark do you take bear Hunting magazine not to put you on the spot here but uh, yes yes
0: i do yeah they just
1: they just ran an article uh in legendary bear dogs about ira jones and uh jones harvey dog so yeah you're 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 in good company there by using that stock it appears
0: well you know and and what um I always as I said earlier, you know, I always listen to the older generation. So when I was getting serious about breeding, Joe Hudson was a was a wealth of knowledge. Um Steve Hurd also was uh you know, talking about a lot of the old dogs and places they went wrong. Uh Norman Joe Walker had bred to the big pine dogs um you know, out in Idaho and so I really paid attention to where people felt they went right and where they went wrong years back with these lines. Some of them disappeared, some of them persisted, Um, you know, and and strong family breeding, strong line breeding uh, was important, but what I found is the dogs that suited me the most all came down to a few key crosses, and by traveling around and And hunting with those dogs and actually seeing them so that I could judge them, my own standards, because everybody's standards are different. Um, I found that the dogs that I liked came out of the same dogs. And even Roy Clark's dogs, I have come to find out just recently, um, he has strong Gantt Mm bloodlines in his original stock. Uh, Now... What's what's really neat about that is is Roy Roy was just a kid then you know just a teenager and his dad Hugh L, they hunted Dart uh, dogs for Charles and uh, the dogs that Roy actually preferred the most were out of the Smith Deal dogs and uh, exactly what <coughs> if you follow my bloodlines back from Steve Heard stuff the Shamrock dogs. All of the stuff really had common ties now it's back there a long way, right, but I believe it's really important um and and when you keep those lines going and you keep that breeding going uh you know you can screw up, but it's you get a lot better percentages than where I was at before
2: well, Mark, you know you hit some nerves there with me, and well, I shouldn't say nerves, you hit some. Some uh invokes some emotion. Me- fond memories, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the bear pin Sam dog that my yep. dad and Everett used to do some some breedings across the way from West Virginia to Illinois and back was out of out of Burnett's Tom, who was sired yep. by Smith-Deal's John and out of Smithfield's Fly, and of course yep. uh, Everett's Old Dan dog was out of. Uh, out of uh, Green's Daisy May, which was a sister to Burnett's Tom, no, so I that I, Green's Daisy May. <laughs> you go you go back to those old dogs and you see you know what a strong foundation that was, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's that brings back a lot of memories. Mark, you know we've had a great visit today, and and we you and I could certainly talk plots for <laughs> for weeks on end and and, and uh, we uh, of course uh, uh, beg the patience of our listeners in that regard but just in in summation uh tell me real quickly you've won some awards for your taxidermy isn't that yeah. correct yeah. tell um, us about I've, that I've,
0: sure you know uh i i guess like anything that i've done um you know, paying attention to the older generation, I learned some important lessons, life lessons. And it is no matter what job you do, if you're doing it, you better do it right. So whatever I've always done in my life, I've I've kind of put myself in 150%, you know. And, and taxidermy was one of those. I didn't want to just do taxidermy. I wanted to be the best I could be. So I started traveling and competing. Uh, I've won awards at the state, national, and world level um you know, kind of achieved all my goals there that I that I had hoped to and uh really been uh really been a pretty good ride it has.
2: Well I noticed a bobcat that you did recently with a grouse that was just phenomenal. Um what what's the story on that one?
0: Yeah, that was just um actually a local cat here in Maine, a friend of mine that uh is a trapper and his son and him trapped a cat together first one that they ever got on their own land out back and uh we just did up a nice mount for them
2: uh, yeah
1: yeah it was a nice yeah. that was a nice
2: piece well thank you for sure for sure well chris i guess it's about time as i've said we've we've shined this tree and well, I, think I just got a couple found it full of game yeah it's <laughs>
1: definitely been a good good uh um, good interview and mark like steve said we could talk for hours and hours and uh sure i want to i want to just wrap up with my thoughts you know you talked about spending time and looking at spending time with ira jones and going and and learning you've talked a lot about uh listening to the older generation and yeah. you're just a couple years behind me it won't be long before we're going to be that older generation and it seems to be a common thread randy smith talked about it uh ira jones in his recent article in bear hunting magazine talked about the importance of building personal relationships and that hounds are a lot about hunting but hounds are also a people business and the importance of building those relationships and and putting aside the I see so many younger houndsmen, and I was guilty of this too. I'm not going to just point my finger back at them. Sure. We think we have to know everything. We don't want to look like the guy that doesn't know anything. We don't want to look like the rookie. And I think we need to yep. realize that we're, we are all going to be rookies. I'm getting ready to yep. take a, a bear hunt next month out in Arizona, and I've never hunted that country before, and I can tell you I'm going to be the rookie. So the sooner we can, we can all understand that, and and understand that we're always going to have new experiences and that's not a weakness at all that is something for us to take advantage of build our experience off of and then use that to improve our houndsmanship and our skills as houndsmen and there's so much to learn and and it's not just from the older generation there's a lot of younger guys that are that are die hard houndsmen they're doing doing things right so we just need to be able to gather all these things and put them together in this puzzle to continue build, to build our skills as houndsmen so that's my concluding thought on this whole thing
0: absolutely um you know i agree with you 100 percent. you know don't don't forget who got us here um but at the same time don't ever close your mind you know this this newer generation of coon hunters that are delving into the dna um there's some really neat stuff going on with breeding and dna and and it's stuff, the older generation they may have confirmed a lot of those suspicions just through trial and error but now we're starting
2: to have some some newer proof as to why things are going on mm-hmm. so
0: really uh really unique you know you can learn from everybody right and uh you know get involved um Pay attention to your sports, you know, join a club. Uh, don't be that guy that says, ah, they're not going to affect me. You know, just um, get involved and, and pay attention to politically what's going on uh, and enjoy. You know, I, I think one thing that uh, I like to take a lot of kids hunting, uh, you is where it's at. So um, take a kid hunting and try to teach him to get away from the computer you know the social media is a great tool it's awesome but it also might be the downfall of us um <laughs> the hunters out there that are looking for sort of approval through others by posting stuff that you know they probably shouldn't uh it's going to be the downfall of hound hunting in in the country if we're not careful and uh you know it's a it started a chain of events that is going to be hard to reverse right now. So teach kids to get away from that computer, um, get out in the woods, enjoy their time, be happy with what they got. And don't, you know, don't always feel that you have to have more and more. Sometimes be happy with what you got and enjoy
2: it. Good thought. There's a a sign that hangs a placard or a picture or whatever uh, that hangs in my home that says gratitude it makes what we have enough. And uh, I think that's it. I mean, I think these kids, uh, you know, just a little gratitude goes a long way. Gratitude for our country. Gratitude for our veterans. Gratitude for those old guys like me who really yep. don't want to be uh, uh, judgmental. We don't want to be holier than thou. We want to just share these experiences yes. that we've gained over the years. and it's not because we know everything. Uh, we certainly don't, but we are willing to share. and I think uh, Mark, you've uh, um, typified the the ideal situation in your life and being willing you know to to take that information and and go to the next step with it. It's been a great interview. really well, have enjoyed you, it thank you very yeah, much appreciate mark. you guys having me yep our
1: pleasure to have you on here and and hopefully we get people who are opening their minds to some this concept of being a being a houndsman of extreme performance so steve you always
2: have the final word well mark may know the guy that that left this quote with me one day when we were trying to start a sheep killing bear and the dogs were going one way and his was going the other. Chris and Mark, you follow your dogs and I'll follow mine.